Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. We begin today with the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. What a powerful first act of the Spirit to enable people to speak and understand across difference offering a kind of repair to the Tower of Babel fiasco. We lift up the diversity of the community being called in here, not only in their languages and their places of origin, but also to different genders and ages and to different modes of communicating with the divine. And then we circle back to conclude our reading of Philippians with the softest landing imaginable in chapter four, verses four through seven. Coming on the heels of the fiery image in the last days in the book of Acts, we nestle into the comfort that comes with God's nearness here, calling us into a state of radical gentleness and a peace that surpasses all understanding. After devoting our year to study and understanding together, which has been pretty fantastic if I do say so myself, this is a profound blessing to take in. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. Good to see you this week. We, yeah, we have arrived at Pentecost. Can you believe that? The end of the narrative lectionary cycle. Here we are on Pentecost. Here we are. I know that in the Jewish calendar, we have a holiday on the same day as Pentecost that is not called Pentecost. It's called Shavuot. And we have this ritual of counting each of the days between Passover and Shavuot. So like you, you know when it's coming. Yeah. In the in the Jewish calendar, because you have to count the days. How many days do you count? You count forty nine days. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the meaning of Pentecost, right? Fiftieth day. And so this yeah. is the Greek uh, form of the holiday Shavuot. So we're actually celebrating the same holiday. It's just it has taken a radically different turn. <laughs> In the, in the Christian, like when, when this text is going to say they came together for Pentecost, what it means is they came together for Shavuot. Yeah. But then the Christian interpretation of that day has taken Pentecost in a whole Go, different yes, direction. It certainly goes in a different direction. Oh, but here's an important connection. Oh, yeah. Okay. The most, I want to say like urgent association I have with Shavuot is eating ice cream. Oh. There's like, Ju- Jewish holidays often have s- some kind of food tradition associated yeah. with them, and Shavuot is the dairy holiday. So people eat blintzes and cheesecake and ice cream. And I would please like That's to t- tie this hermeneutically to the presence of the tongues in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all I got. That's pretty good, though. Yeah. So tongues <laughs> of flame, they're, they're licking <laughs> their ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I think this Mm -hmm. should be a new tradition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So our reading for today, um, we actually have just a tiny bit more we're going to read from Philippians, um, from chapter four. We're going to do that at the end. But the core of our reading is back in the book of Acts in chapter two, where it describes this 
pretty wild series of events that happen on Pentecost yeah. that involve the the tongues seeking ice cream, as we have said. <laughs> so that's in Acts chapter two. Yeah. It's been a minute since we've been sort of at this point in the story. So we have yeah. to kind of like rewind in our minds. Yeah. <laughs> Can you help place us at sort of the point in the story where Acts 2 is taking place? Sure, yeah. The narrative lectionary is a little wobbly right at the end in terms of its chronology because we go from Easter and we kind of skip forward into the thinking about how the church developed. And then we're skipping backwards now to the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So we're in Acts chapter 2. We're in the Luke-Acts version of the story, which is slightly different than John's version of the story, which we've been reading all year. But essentially, where we are is Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, and he has just ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And when he goes into heaven, he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples have been in Jerusalem awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And that's what then happens here in Acts chapter 2. Spoiler alert. Mm. (laughs) We already saw one narration of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We saw John's version of it in John chapter 20, where Jesus breathes the Spirit into them. In the Luke-Acts version of the story, that doesn't happen. And so this is the way that the the Spirit comes on the community in the in the Luke-Acts version of the story is, is this story. So we've already had one story of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, according to John, and then, and then here's a different story of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, according to Luke. Does that get us enough, do you think? I think so, yeah. That's, that's really helpful. I've uh, jumped back in my mind to that moment, and it, it sets the stage well for the events that are about to unfold. So should I go ahead and dive in? I think so. Let's do it. Okay, so the section from Acts is chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And I am reading from the NRSV. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. That's a pretty wild story. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's so quick, but there's so much going on in four little verses. Yeah, (laughs) I know, I know, I know. So can we talk for just a hot second about Shavuot? Yes, please, yeah. the, The holiday that the Jewish community would be celebrating at this time. So it's one of the three big pilgrimage festivals on the Jewish calendar. So people, even if they weren't already in Jerusalem, would be coming to Jerusalem for the festival. And one thing that struck me as I was reading this year was that, you know, that Shavuot is supposed to mark the receiving of Torah. Like it marks the moment that Moses is given the Torah on Mount Sinai. So like that's that's like pretty much the big revelation. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely right. So... I don't know. Do you want to play with that at all? Like sort of draw out that that connection between receiving receiving revelation, like receiving Torah and what's happening to the people in this story? Yeah, no, Amy, I think that's exactly the right connection. I think that's really important. 
we were talking about the Pentecost being the 50th day. And so I, I can't remember if we said, but it's it's counting from Passover, right? I think you did mm-hmm. say that. It's counting. Yeah, it's counting from the second day of Passover. So from the crossing of the Red Sea in the, in the narrative yeah. until the giving of the Torah on Sinai, and which is really foundational day for the Jewish community. It's the day that they sort of the giving of the covenant with God for the first time, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we've seen Luke do this. We've seen the Christian tradition do this also with Passover and taking Passover and connecting it then to the Last Supper to say this thing that we used to celebrate in this one way before Jesus, now we celebrate in a different way after mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so this is a kind of thing that the early Christians were doing as they were taking their Jewish roots and they were reinterpreting them in light of the Jesus story. So I think that's exactly what's happening here. I think you're exactly right about that. They're taking the giving of the Torah on Sinai and they're transposing it into the giving of the spirit mm-hmm. in Jerusalem and saying, this is the foundation of this Christian way of being as, you know, I don't know if it's as over and against the Jewish way of being, but sort mm-hmm. of a, an extrapolation of it. Mm-hmm. We were given the Torah back there. We were given the spirit here. And, that, and now we're in a new, a new era. I think that's right. Yeah. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, that that sort of drawing out that connection even a little more deeply was was really helpful for me. The other thing that occurs to me, Bobby, is that there are, you, know, you and I have studied these texts together, although it's been a long time <laughs> since we have. Nice. There is, there's a, there are a lot of pretty wild stories about things that happen overnight on Shavuot, because there's a tradition of staying up all night and studying. And when you stay up all night, things just get weird. I mean, yeah. <laughs> going back to like yeah. middle school sleepovers and what goes yeah. down at those, like it doesn't yeah. get any less weird yeah. <laughs> when you're a grown rabbi. When I was in college, I was a, I was a chemical engineering major. I don't know if we have said that ever on the, on the podcast, but that was me. When I was a senior chemical engineering major, there were two major classes I had to take and they had semester-long projects that were due two days in a row. And so I pulled back-to-back all-nighters. And I remember I was sitting at my desk at like four o'clock in the morning on the second all-nighter. I'd been up for like 50 hours or something. And I was sitting there typing and this guy came running through my room and he pole vaulted over my desk and out the, <laughs> out the window in front of me. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I'm clearly hallucinating it is a very strange. This is a very strange moment when the guy's pole vaulting through your back through your back window. That didn't really happen, right? I mean, it was a it was a hallucination. This yeah. is the kind of things that happens to you. After I mean, that was a that was a better story in my head, apparently. Than it no, was. it's a, I I thought I got that, but I just wanted to make sure you weren't saying someone else who uh, actually pole vaulted through my room. Yeah, someone else who had not been sleeping actually pole vaulted. <laughs> that would have been a better story, actually, with a guy that yeah, one of the guys on my the team. Entire chemical yeah. engineering department goes yeah. hog wild. Yeah. But things definitely do happen when you uh, when you stay up all night, especially when yeah. you stay up all night reading Torah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the kind of like ecstatic experience that they're describing here is kind of in keeping with Jewish traditions about the ecstatic experiences that happen on this holiday, which I think is just kind of a, I don't know, cool connection. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And we, I think we've talked a few times about the Midrashim where when you're studying Torah and it starts to like, spark and you know you see flames coming from the room and all these ideas about there's just a deep sense of prophecy or a deep sense of engagement even just with 
with the text and with the spirit. So this imagery has deep roots in the in the tradition. You're exactly right about that. Do you pick up, do you pull out like creation story imagery from the violent wind? You know, I, I haven't, but I really like that connection. Can you say more about that? I mean, in the, in the first creation story, it describes, you know, a, a bunch of nothing. And then there's this Ruach Elohim, which could either be the wind of God or a really powerful wind that sort of, Oh yeah. A godlike wind. Is a godlike yeah. wind, right. That is that is present in the in the chaos. And so I guess I wondered whether there was this moment of, you know, recreation or or I don't know. I guess a lot of times these sort of like revelatory experiences have something that is like something that would happen in nature, but kind of bigger and yeah. you know, more exaggerated. So I really like that connection, Amy, and the, you know, the Ruach Elohim that you're talking about can mean the wind of God, but as you well know, the Ruach in Hebrew can also mean Mm -hmm. spirit. And so there is a connection. And the Christian tradition reads that wind, not as the wind of God blowing over the waters in Genesis 1, but as the spirit of God. Mm -hmm. And so that connection between spirit and wind is is a very deep one in the tradition. And so that connection here, I think, is absolutely there. And then to say that this is then a now a new act of creation, I think that's a I think that's a really nice move. When that occurred to me, my next thought was, I don't know, just this realization that w- <laughs> with the first time when there was a Ruach Elohim on earth, there was no one there to hear it. Like there was mm. nobody to report what it was like. Oh yeah. And for some reason that I don't know, just thinking back to that made my mind sort oh, of like zoom out to like yeah. the enormity of creation and God's time and how like all of this has happened before, but we weren't even here. And yeah. And and I don't know. I don't know. And now people get to be here for it. Like it's yeah, I, I don't know. That. It's so here they are experiencing, actually experiencing the moment in which something new is being created. I love that. Yeah. Probably a little scary. Well, maybe, maybe it's not scary if you've been up all night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that leads us directly into the divided tongues. The CEB translate that, translates that individual flames of fire, oh, which I really like. Because uh-huh. like divided tongue to me oh, sounds like a snake tongue, you know, with the little, uh-huh. like their little I, split I was at the like, end. is it like a split chicken breast? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's happening? Oh, I really like that. I think that, yeah. I mean, I guess there's sort of a pun-ish in the use of the word tongue because we're talking about language. Yeah. But it's such a bizarro yeah. image. I, I prefer just thinking them as little individual individuals. Things. Yeah. I like that too, be- theologically, because it's, you know, it's the same spirit that is generating all of this fire, but it's alighting on each one of them individually. So it gets that kind of, we're all individually part of one thing that is bigger than any one of us. Yeah. So I think that imagery really is helpful to me thinking about it, thinking about it that way. No, that I think that, I think that's a much more meaningful way of, of getting into this text than, I don't know. I just, if I picture an actual tongue, it's really hard to take this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just to clarify, because I feel like this is, 
Uh, this gets a little muddy for me later. Yeah. Does it seem to you from what we know so far that they're speaking like actual languages? Yeah. They're not speaking nonsense. No, there's a, so there's a, a misunderstanding, honestly, about this text that what they are doing is speaking in tongues, uh, which is not what is happening here. Mm-hmm. The, as well, it'll be clearer, I think, later, but the Apostle Paul, who we've been reading, does in a number of his letters talk about a gift of speaking in tongues, which he calls glossolalia, mm-hmm. by which he means people have the capacity to speak in the tongues of angels. And so when you and I would hear that, it wouldn't make any sense to us because we don't speak angel. But to them, that's what they would be doing. And then other people have the gift of interpreting tongues. So some people can speak the language of angels. Some people can understand it. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is they're speaking in other languages. um, And we'll see in a minute that people from all around the world are able to hear in their own language what, what is being said. So this is... I mean, in that sense, it's sort of mundane. Like it's a divine, it's a miraculous thing that creates this very mundane, I don't know, mundane's not exactly right, but it's not otherworldly. It's yeah. like I would start speaking and, you know, somebody who speaks French and somebody who speaks German and somebody who speaks Hindi or whatever it is yeah. would all be able to understand what was being said, which is a really cool thing and very different than speaking angel, angel language. Right. It's like the the fantasy of every graduate student and perhaps some other people that one day you'll just wake up being able to speak exactly. one of these languages that you don't speak. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's exactly right. Yeah. Today would basically be like everybody had Google Translate on their phone, I guess. <laughs> like it might be less miraculous now than it once was. But that's basically, it's like a divine Google Translate. The divine Google Translate. Well, it doesn't say anything yet about whether they can understand each other. Do you assume they can understand each other? Well, that's fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's gonna in a little in a minute. It's gonna say yeah. that people from all over the world can understand yes, them. Yes, I, yes. It's interesting to me whether they whether they know what they're saying. Like they're right. all yeah, and yeah. I think they know what they're saying, but I don't know if they can understand. I don't know. It'd be a crazy. It would be a crazy experience just to suddenly be fluently speaking some language that you don't actually speak. Yeah, I've had dreams about that occasionally. Like literally, I've had dreams about that. Probably because I was a grad student. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's, I mean, we'll talk more about this as we go, but it's such an interesting, like, this is the first action of the Holy Spirit. Like, what, of all the things the Holy Spirit could do, like, right out of the gate in a moment of creation, what does the Holy Spirit do? Let's you speak in languages that you do not already speak. That's, to me, that's so fascinating. So, yeah. It's a foundation point. I agree. I agree. I agree. Should we read the next section and then dive a little bit more into that or is there anything I else think so yeah because I'm kind of yeah. leaning into like leaning I wanna, in there's a little some bit. stuff to talk about okay, <laughs> yeah great. So let's go ahead so I'm picking up in verse five now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each amazed and astonished they said are not all these who are speaking Galileans And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamph... Oh, this is really going to give me a run for my money. (laughs) Phrygia and Pamphylia, 
Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. If you're going to have people read this text in front of the congregation, <laughs> you got to warn them about that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I was in seminary, a friend of mine asked me to read scripture for their like chapel sermon or whatever. And I uh, was like, sure, no problem. And they're like, you know, here's the text to read it ahead. And I was like, I mean, I know how to read. Like, I've been reading since I was four. I don't four. need to read it ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I got it. It wasn't this passage, but it was something very much like this. It was like verses of just weird words. And it was very awkward. The best hope you can have is that no one else knows how to say them either. Yeah. So you're just... Just plow. You just got to sound confident. Just say some stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember when that happened, like the last one was Ur, like Ur of the Chaldees. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't... And I made it all the way through these sounding very confident, whether they were right or not. But I got to Ur, and I couldn't decide whether you should say Ur or Ur. And so the one (laughs) of all these (laughs) crazy names, the one that tripped me up was two letters long. That's sad. It's so mm-hmm. funny. You said, or I was like, how else would you say that? Yeah, you could say, er. Er. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> er. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've mentioned that it's Shavuot. Yeah. And so there would be Jews from all over the world traveling to Jerusalem. Right. But that doesn't seem to be the group that they're talking about here. They're talking about Jews from all over the world, every nation under heaven who are living in Jerusalem. Is that how you understand that? Like, oh, you know, are, I never paid attention expats. to that, Amy. But that's, that is what it sounds like. I think it's so interesting because if they're, if they're like expats and they're living in Jerusalem, they presumably can, they can get by. Like they can speak as they need to speak to live in Jerusalem. Yeah. But I'm just like imagining the experience of having, you know, been living away from your home. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden hearing your mother tongue. Yeah. Have you studied abroad or lived abroad? I have lived abroad. Yeah. I lived in, well, lived. So I studied abroad in England, which doesn't really count for the prison. Not not for (laughs) the purposes purposes. of this example. Yeah. But I did live in China for a couple of months. and, And I do remember that experience of someone would start speaking English. And it was like this sort of. Yeah. Oasis or something, yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it is this oasis and it's this, I don't know, like, I don't even know how to describe how I imagine it would feel. I mean, I also have lived abroad for all of like, you know, four months or whatever. What do you, I, I mean, this is an imagination question, but what do you think that must feel like? If they're, if they're living in Jerusalem and functioning linguistically in Jerusalem, but then hear their mother tongue. I love that, Amy. And, you know, and it's not just, it is that they hear their mother tongue and it's that they hear it from Galileans and somehow that they, they know that they're Galileans. And, you know, I think Galileans have a reputation in ancient Judaism as being kind of backwater and not very sophisticated. So here you have some sort of unsophisticated, linguistically not very developed people who seem to have taken the time to learn how to speak in your language. Like to me, the hospitality of that 
Yeah. Like here's not just that I hear words that I can understand, but someone who's, they're not their natural words. It's someone who has learned how to use these words that, and completely unexpected people. But to me, it would bring you a sense of like a little bit of homecoming here. Here I am. It feels familiar to me, but also this sense of somebody's really trying to be hospitable to me. Yeah. What do you think about that? I love that. I, I love that. And I love the word hospitable there. I mean, because I imagine this is a crowd of people who they're willing to, to um, meet a pretty high bar for what's expected of them in order to be in religious community together or worship God in the way they understand God is supposed to be worshiped. They have moved to Jerusalem. Yeah. They have learned the languages that they need that are not their mother tongues. Yeah. And so there certainly is no lack of commitment on that part, but then to yeah. be, it just is like a way of meeting them. You know, like we, we see you and all of you, not just what you're willing to do in order to be, to be part of this. Yeah. Part of this people or part of this group. I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it is, I think it's lovely. Yeah, I really like that, Amy. I, you know, I have always read this text as there were people who had traveled to Jerusalem from their places, like in other texts that we've read. And I really, I really appreciate your drawing attention to that dynamic. I think, I think that opens up this story in a different kind of way for me. So do you have the Tower of Babel in your mind? I very much have the Tower of Babel in my mind. Tell me how it's, how it's, how that's living in your mind. How is that playing out with this? Well, so the Tower of Babel, I'm going to push this question back to you in just a second. Okay. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> okay. You know, the Tower of Babel story, clearly in that story, up to Genesis 11, which is where that story appears, the world has all been speaking one language. Presumably it's been Hebrew, although we don't know that for sure. Mm-hmm. And the people come together because they can speak one language. They say, let's build a tower and be like, and make a name for ourselves. And so they build a tower and the text then says God saw the tower and was if was concerned if they can build this tower and try to be like God's and there's no end to what they can do. And so God comes down from heaven, which I, think, I always think is kind of funny that God still had to come down to reach this mm-hmm, tower that they mm-hmm. had tried to build to heaven and mm-hmm. disperses the people across the land and confuses their languages. So Genesis 11 is the biblical story of the origin of languages, which was a way of keeping people from scheming together about doing things to try to make a name for themselves. Mm -hmm. So this story in my mind, now you've got these people from all these different language groups able to understand each other, feels like an undoing of that story in one way or another. Yeah. I'm curious because you asked that question. I feel like, I feel like it resonated for you too. I'm curious when you think about that connection, what do you, what do you think's going on? What am I thinking? You know, overall, really similar, similarly to what you have described, that there's some undoing of the story. And then I was thinking like, well, what does that mean, undoing yeah. of undoing of what? What yeah, does the story exactly right. represent and yeah. what is being undone here? Yeah. And I, you know, maybe some kind of end to this somewhat combative relationship <laughs> between yeah. God and humans that is described in Babel, in the Tower of Babel story. I mean, certainly it's not an equalizing of God and humans. Like, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. I don't know if this, I don't know if I should think of this as 
a change in the nature of the relationship between God and humans, or a change in the yeah. nature of the relationship between humans and each other, or if there needs to be a change between humans and each other in order to facilitate a change between humans and God, or do you, do you have any, do you land anywhere in particular on that? Yeah, no, I think I, I really like the way you asked that question. You know, if this were truly an undoing of Genesis 11, what I think would happen is the Holy Spirit would miraculously restore everybody to homogeneity, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Make everybody speak one language again. But this right. isn't that. Yeah. This is, so this, this is not like we should all like conform to one way of being in the world. This is, we should learn how to work with each other across these linguistic and cultural differences, right? So now we've got a movement Whereas originally in the Genesis 11 story, like creation of different languages and different cultures was a way of keeping people separated so they wouldn't work together. This is now saying, okay, now we need to bridge those cultural differences and those language differences and draw everyone in, not by having them sort of forego their own languages, but by learning to speak and hear each other in our own idiom. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's, it's a different way of human beings relating to each other. Now we relate to each other across cultural difference, or at least that's the invitation here. I do think there's a change in the relationship of humans and God. The way that I, the way that I would get, get at that, and maybe stretching it slightly, I don't know what you'll think about this. Hmm. In the original, in Genesis 11, it was, let's get together and make a name for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so they use their homogeneity to try to be like gods. Mm-hmm. Now it is, let's work together across our cultural differences in order to it's going to be in order to spread the name of Jesus. And so they're, they're now united in doing something that's not about lifting themselves up, but about spreading the gospel. We haven't yeah. quite gotten there yet yeah. in the logic of the text. I, that's how I kind of get at it, but I don't know. There's, I'm sure there must be other ways. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I just think it really represents either a huge act of trust from God to say, like, yeah. we, we put these— you know, I put these sort of safety rails up before, yeah. and I'm going to take them down. But yeah. they're not really being taken down because humans have proven themselves reliable. Like, yeah. they have not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. It seems like they're being taken down in service of something else, you know, in yeah. service. Like, if the most important thing here is to spread the gospel so that people can— you know, access God through the pathway laid out by Jesus, then then that trumps everything else. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that I think there's something to that. And I also think it's important that it's the presence of the Spirit that enables people to do this. So mm-hmm. it's not exactly that the and it is that the barriers have been taken down, but it's it's that the spirit enables people to overcome the barriers. So there's a sense in which where the spirit is present then this is possible. But where the spirit is absent, then maybe not. That's such a good point because I've been reading this as though it's like a literal thing that now you can speak this language forever. <laughs> and yeah. that's not what this story is saying. No, I don't think so. Yeah, no, that that's really helpful that this, you know, step it back a minute there, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> step it back. And then there's this accusation that they are filled with new wine. Is that just saying they're drunk? That's the way I've always read that. I think, yeah, they're drunk. And that's what Peter's going to respond to here in a minute. So I think that's the way. I don't know if there's another way of understanding it. 
the gospel say, don't put new wine in old wineskins. Like there is a yeah. way of thinking of the message of Jesus as new wine, but it's not clear to me what they're even saying at this point. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think, I think it's just, they're saying they're drunk. I did learn from, I watch a lot of like mediocre medical dramas with my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> like not just Grey's Anatomy, but like a bazillion other ones that have sort of spun off in that genre. And I did learn that a lack of sleep, if it goes on for long enough, can have similar effects on your body to drunkenness. Oh, interesting. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's actually true, but I but I learned it from TV. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it must be true. Yeah. Everything you learn on TV. Yeah. I mean, it's nine o'clock in the morning. If they just stayed up, then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you want to add to that section? The only other thing that I would say, and I mean, I think we've already kind of covered it, but Luke spends a long time listing places <laughs> as you as you experienced when you were trying to read. I did. And like, it's yeah. a significant part of a fairly, like, he spends as much time listing places as he did explaining what it was like when the Holy Spirit came into the room, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think just the point there is he really is trying to say this is a global phenomenon. There really are people from all over the world, and they're... They're pious Jews, and they're also people who have con- proselytes, people who have converted to Judaism. And so this is, it is a worldwide phenomenon in this moment, but it is concentrated in Jerusalem and among either people who are either Jewish or have converted to Judaism. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know what the significance of that is, but it seems really important to him, to the author, to, to be clear about that. Yeah. No, you're right. He goes to some pains to make sure we know that. Hi, everyone. My name is Tom Harris, and I'm the pastor of Govins Presbyterian Church in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm a Bible Worm supporter at the virtual worm level. Every week, I get to begin my sermon preparation by listening to the Bible Worm episode for the upcoming text. I choose to listen to Bible Worm because the text-based interfaith dialogue between Bobby and Amy is so unique. I preach to a highly educated congregation who come to the text with diverse theological perspectives. So Bobby's and Amy's interfaith dialogue is a great primer. I also appreciate their passion for social justice and reading the text in light of contemporary social concerns. As a virtual worm supporter, I get to join Bobby and Amy and other pastors around the country for a monthly Zoom Bible study of upcoming texts before the episodes are recorded. This allows Amy and Bobby to be more in tune with some of the questions their listeners bring to the passage in their particular contexts. So I hope you'll consider becoming a supporter of Bible Worm. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. So thanks for listening. And now back to this week's podcast. So I am in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a beautiful text that's added in here from Joel. Yeah. And the question that I wrote in the margin, I don't know, it seems a little simple-minded, but I'll ask it anyway. How exactly do you connect this text to what has just happened? Because it doesn't say they were prophesying. Prophesying? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. We're, we're not really told what they've been saying. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether we're supposed to think because it involves fire and like ecstatic speech that, of course, it's prophecy. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know about that. I think I, that's a good question. You know, the, the, to me, the obvious connection is like what has just happened is the spirit has been poured mm-hmm. out and people that you would not expect to be able to do these kinds of miraculous things are now able to do it. And so, so here we've got Peter saying this thing that you, that you are seeing where we now have the spirit and are able to talk. That's this thing that was prophesied back here in Joel. Mm-hmm. And so he's connecting it. And we were talking about how the Christian story takes things that are Jewish festivals and here Jewish scriptures and says, okay, well, that scripture is now what is happening here. So he's very much at pains to say, it's not, it's not a new thing that's happening. And so that since it's not new wine, right? It, this is yeah. a thing we've been anticipating since the time of Joel. Now here it is happening here. Yeah. The specifics of what prophesying I'm I'm less clear about that, but the sort of general picture of what's happening seems to square pretty well. Yeah, no, I, that's really helpful, Bobby. And I, I love thinking of this as like a, an example of the spirit enabling a type of speech that we are sure didn't come from the person's mind. Yeah. In that, in the Jewish lectionary right now, we're reading from the book of Leviticus that has a lot of emphasis on Uh, a lot of passages, important passages on speech and the importance of speech and the power of speech. But the interest of Leviticus is not this kind of speech. It really sort of imagines you, you are controlling your speech and you'd best control your speech because, you know, words, words have real effect in the world. Yeah. And so it's interesting just to sort of twist my mind in a different direction and think about what Joel says and think about you know, what's being said here in Acts is that there's also a kind of speech that is not originating from you and that we can be sure yeah. is not originating from you. Yeah, it is and it can't be controlled. It's just a yeah. sort of a free yes. expression. Yeah. 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 The thing that I really love about the Joel prophecy is the general, like the, the breadth of the gift being given. Mm-hmm. Like it's on all people, on your sons and daughters, on your young and old, on mm-hmm. your slaves, men and women. It's like, you know, it's, it's sort of taken into account like all genders and all ages and all social statuses. Mm-hmm. Like once the spirit pours out, like it's not distinguishing amongst all those groups anymore. It is it is available to everyone who is there. Just that inclusion, and especially after we've been reading this thing about all the languages being pulled in, I just, I really love that vision and, and the, you know, 
if you think about this text as the foundation of the church or something, yeah, like that's a really nice kind of vision of what church could be, yeah, or what any community could be, really, where the you know the everybody in that community, no matter who they are, is thought to have access to the same the same power and the same ability to contribute. I love that, Bobby. I love the way you said that, and I love. You know, something about the way you said it made me think, you know, usually when I hear prophecy, I think like there's someone who is the prophet and they are announcing something to a group of people that is, you know, either listening or more likely not listening, (laughs) but, but their role is to convey some kind of message. And I'm not, you know, that could still be in here also for sure. But when I picture everyone having access to this, it, it pulls my attention more to, the idea, like the sort of pulling back of the curtain, like the the breaking, like that, that that breaking yeah. through the. What's that? I'm sure there's a word for this. Like that, there's some breaking through the boundaries of the divine world and the human world, yeah. and so now everyone has access, and everyone has this sort of stream of connection and communication, and and yes, you say it out loud so other people can hear it too. But I'm just thinking about how it how it lives within each individual, which is also pretty awesome. Yeah. Except a moon that turns to blood doesn't sound that awesome. <laughs> no, it does It does not. Yeah. No, I love that last part because so now up here in the first part of this prophecy, we've got the people doing all the stuff. Yeah. And then in the last part of the prophecy, we've got God doing all the stuff. So there's this like really interesting like, there's a human element to what's going on, empowered by the spirit, and then there is a divine element. These are all clearly sort of apocalyptic signs, you know, of the the end of history or the changing of the the nature of the world or something like that. Yeah. Those images are a little scary, like blood and fire and smoke and darkness. Like those are not fuzzy warm images, no. <laughs> but but they are clear clear resonances with the traditions about the apocalyptic yeah. Um, arrival of, of re-arrival of God in history. Yeah. I'm curious, Amy, you know, we've been talking a lot about prophecy, which I think is the right emphasis in this text. But back in verse 17, there's sons and daughters will prophesy, young will see visions, elder will dream dreams. And so it's not purely an mm. act of speaking here, but there's also a visioning and dreaming. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you make anything of that kind of diversity of what's being empowered here? I'm so glad you asked that question because I think it's sort of, I think those words, I mean, in particular, like dream dreams, that's just, you know, so it just is such a lovely phrase. It's so poetic in in English. And I think that that notion was sort of nestled in the back of my mind as I was envisioning this more, like the beauty of just opening up that connection, like that sort of phone line <laughs> yeah. between an individual and and God that could manifest in all kinds of of different ways and and not all with the purpose of communicating it to someone else some of it yeah. is just is just yours yeah it makes me think i mean back to a lot of mystical texts and it's you know no surprise that the texts that describe these sort of crazy experiences on Shavuot are are also from the mystical Jewish tradition. But it has me thinking about that and back to the beginning of John. 
like this idea that the things that we thought were separate entities that had like a clear boundary around them, either that was never really true or that boundary is fading. And so, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm seeing this as like that, that boundary between humans is fading through language. Mm-hmm. And then here we also get some of that boundary in communication between gods and humans is fading. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And the other thing that is vaguely reminding me of, I think, is, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians and, el- and elsewhere talks about the variety of gifts that are given to people. Mm. And this is sort of a general gesture in that direction, I think, about, you know, we often value in our culture people who can talk good, you know, mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who like say the right things, they have good rhetoric or whatever. And that sort of, if you call someone a dreamer, that is often used as a pejorative. Yeah. And so we sort of are privileging some things over others. And, and here it's some some people, or maybe all people, will be able to prophesy, be able to see visions, to dream dreams. like, And that embrace of we need people who can see other way, other possibilities. We need people who can dream a better world every bit as much as we need somebody who can talk about it. Yeah. And the spirit empowers all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. And so not only should we try to embrace and appreciate the gifts that all people bring, but also the different modes in which those gifts are brought. I love that, Bobby. And I love how that sort of bridges my resonance with this idea of individual experiences exactly. with the divine through this. And you're saying like, and, and it's all needed in, yeah. you know, in community too. I think it goes back to the beginning, which talks about individual tongues of fire, which are all related to the same Holy Spirit. And so there's this sense of the individual, but they're all contributing to the, to the greater connection to the divine. Yeah. So anything else you want to add on this section from Acts? I don't, verse 21 seems like a little bit of a different thing to me. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Like that's kind of where, I think that's kind of where this whole thing has maybe been pointing is, you know, the point of this, of all of this, the giving of the spirit is so that people can know that those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved in, that comes from Joel. And in Joel, that Lord there, in the Greek anyway, Adonai, I think in the Hebrew, that's actually the the tetragrammaton, the divine Mm -hmm. name. Mm -hmm. In the Greek then it's Adonai, which is, the way that one transcribes a divine name into the Septuagint. In the New Testament, when it gets picked up with Lord, it sounds like you're talking about Jesus. So it's an interesting move, what has happened just by recontextualizing the Joel prophecy into the New Testament. It's sort of changed the sense. Now you read, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved, whereas Joel had said, anyone who calls on the name of Adonai will be saved. Mm Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I really love the, like, there's a there's a generosity here again. Everybody, like, this is freely available. Anyone who calls on the name of, of whatever the Lord there means will be saved. And then there's always, like, I always rub a little funny against the narrowness of the, like, when you talk about everyone who does this will be saved, then you're, you know, the flip side of that is everyone who doesn't will not be saved. Right. So there's an exclusionary, like, this text that has been so beautifully inclusive yeah. right there at the end, sort yeah. of says, oh, yeah, but also there's an exclusion. Right, which on the one hand really lends urgency to the ability to sort of communicate across exactly all boundaries. 
And also, yeah, I mean, I think we, we've talked about this in a previous week, too. It, it would be nice if that part didn't have to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in there. Yeah. But it's in there. It is in there. Yep. Yeah. We have one more little text to read, Bobby, that is so lovely. It's Philippians yeah. chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And... It seemed so sort of unrelated to this text that when we started, I asked Bobby if he had added that text on for some reason, because it just is really, it's it's really just, a di- it's just different. It, it's not related yeah, it to is. Acts. No. Do you, do, do you, I mean, do you want to say anything about why we think this text <laughs> is in here? Or it's it's really a lovely text. I'm not complaining about text. reading it. It's just, yeah. uh, it seems a little, a little random. You know, the narrative lectionary, which we follow on the podcast, is trying to do a couple of things here. One is, this is Pentecost, and so we need to read the Pentecost story. The other is that we have been working our way for a couple of weeks now through Philippians. And so we don't want to just leave Philippians like in in mid-text. And so I think this is an attempt to kind of go back and say, okay, well, the main focus for today is Pentecost. We also need to wrap up Philippians. And then as you were saying, this is a really lovely text, as we'll see in just a second when you read it. And like when you think like, okay, we've been since September talking our way through the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to where we are now, like to end on this text is kind of a nice place to pull the narrative lectionary to a close. So I I think I kind of embrace it that way, not necessarily trying to connect strands across this specifically to Acts 2 that we just read, but maybe just letting it be, letting it be itself. Yeah. I like that. I like that. This seems to me like the kind of a text that that you would like read to a child at bedtime. You know, like it's just such a, it's so lovely. Okay, so I'm going to read, picking up in verse four. We're in Philippians chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Mm. That's so lovely. Bobby, how do you understand the connection? Like, how does the confidence in God's nearness Mm. help us to be gentle? Or how does it relate to this? you know, imperative encouragement towards radical gentleness. I love that expression, radical gentleness. (laughs) I really love that. Yeah, I was working a little bit with the notion of gentleness and, you know, the Greek there, epikase, means Mm. something like gentleness is pretty good. Generosity, Mm. magnanimity, maybe some translations have it, consideration. It's like, it's not simply being gentle, but sort of being kind and opening oneself to the other and doing what you can for somebody else, I think, in a spirit of, yeah, in a, in a humble way. Mm-hmm. Which I think is such a lovely, like, when here, here's the thing that Paul's telling us we need to do, or at least telling the Philippians that they need to do, is demonstrate gentleness, kindness, generosity in all, in all people. And I love the connection that you have, that you made there because the Lord is near. And then the very next thing is don't be anxious. 
Mm-hmm. And so this idea, like being generous and gentle because the Lord is near and therefore you don't need to be anxious, those are so closely related when you say it like that. I don't know whether you understand the Lord is near there as spatial, like the Lord is all around you, mm. or whether you understand it as temporal, like the kingdom is coming in. Maybe you, maybe you can read it both of those ways, but the, the, a, the close presence of God in one way or another, who, who knows what you need and is going to make sure you have what you need, means that you don't have to be anxious about things. And it's our anxiety about things, like our our worry about scarcity, that if we give to somebody else, we won't have enough for ourselves. That's the thing that generates all kinds of yeah. negative interactions with people. People become competitors instead of neighbors. Yeah. And so if we can be confident that the Lord is near and that the Lord does indeed give give us what we need, then then there, that's what gives us the capacity to be generous and gentle and kind to others. Yeah. I love that. And I love that the way that you connected, don't be anxious. Like I hadn't put that in the chain also, but you can just think about like the way humans work and what anxiety causes in a system. You know, if, if you are anxious, you're not going to be magnanimous or gentle or, you know, particularly kind. That's, and so it is like a big, I think, question or problem of human existence. Like, how do we manage our own anxiety yeah. in a way that allows us to, you know, open our boundaries a little bit, yeah. you know, to other people? And it's so interesting coming to this text from the last one. I don't know if this is like a, a connection that was intentional or I'm just reaching here. But, I mean, there the idea of like the day of the Lord – yeah, sure, it's good, but yeah. it's also scary. And they always yeah. throw in that little kicker at the end, like you know, like it it might not go well for for some people. And yeah, th- that kind of urgency that maybe is needed in some ways to prompt people to action also causes anxiety. And so the idea here that God is near just like you would imagine God would be near in that last day, God is near and that should relieve anxiety. That should help you to be gentle. Yeah. Is that it definitely has a different vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to read that nearness. Yeah. When you start to connect it to sort of apocalyptic re-entry into the world like yeah starts to stress me out <laughs> so, well, exactly because that's yeah. stressful that's stressful yeah. so i think i tend to read the lord is near like just in my own personal yeah response to it as like god is god is all around and immediately available to us whether that's what paul meant or not i'm not entirely sure but that to me is a very comforting image and one that is familiar also from from hebrew scripture yeah i love the phrase in verse seven, in the CEB, it's the peace of God that exceeds all understanding. Mm. I often hear that the peace that passes understanding. Mm-hmm. What was it in the NRSV? Surpasses all understanding. Surpasses all. Like I don't, the longer you, at least the longer I sit with that image of peace that surpasses all understanding, and yeah. I'm like, oh, I think I understand what that might be like. And I'm like, no, it surpasses that. Right. <laughs> you know, and so you're then like, as far as you can imagine, experiencing peace, like it's still further than that, more peaceful yeah. than that. Yeah. And like this passage has such an emphasis on 
uh, joy, be glad, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Like I said it once, I'm going to say it again. Yeah. And now I'm going to end with this peace that passes all understanding. More peaceful than you could ever imagine. Yeah. I will say that that is not often the way that I inhabit the world. Like, I think I'm kind of an anxious person. I mean, the world is an anxious place in this moment. And so to think like there is, there is available to us a resource of joy and peace that, that is near and that could be accessed and, and embraced. Like that's really calming for me. Like I, I love that. I love that imagery of what life life of faith could be like. I love that, Bobby. And I love it, especially as a last text of a year of mm-hmm. study. You know, we have been coming up with words for everything that we can, anything we can parse into words, anything we can break into a smaller unit or create some, you know, new connection that we hadn't seen before. Like it's been all about understanding. And I think yeah. we've gotten somewhere with the understanding. I don't yeah. think the understanding is for naught, but it's like as far as we've gotten to any sense of peace that can come from understanding, it's just miles beyond yeah. that. Like it just sort of is this horizon out in mm-hmm. front of us that you can't, you can't touch, but you can see, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay, I have one last question, I think, famous last words, right, on this section. And it is about, so we, we kind of skipped. We had, you know, gentleness, the Lord is near. And then we talked about this peace of God that surpasses mm-hmm. all understanding. And in the middle, there's prayer. Yeah. It's striking to me that... I mean, I guess this should sort of go without saying, but it doesn't say God's got it handled. It does not. It just says sort of like, I don't know, what's that? What's the phrase people use? Like, give it to God. Like, yeah. you don't need to worry about it. Yeah. It doesn't mean nothing bad is going to happen. It just yeah. means you don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, I was really trying. We're going to read a passage from Matthew next year in which the Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well, right? So it's, don't worry because God's going to provide. Mm. And I was sort of trying to make this passage say that, but it, you're right, it doesn't say that. It says, take it to God in prayer and you will receive peace that passes understanding. And it doesn't actually say, I mean, I think it, it implies in there that you're going to be taken care of, maybe. Yeah. But it doesn't actually say that. God's got it. And there's no reason to be anxious. That's yeah. what I think you're right about that. That's what it says. You're right. I mean, it does like sort of, it, yeah, like it implies everything's going to be okay, but I guess it depends what you mean by okay. That's right. Yeah. You What's know? your time horizon? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. What's your time horizon? And what is the field of things that in your own mind you deem to be acceptable outcomes? It might yeah. not be one of those. And it's worth remembering that, you know, we, we talked about early on in Philippians that Paul's writing this letter from prison and he seems to have a capital sentence over his head yeah. and maybe he's about to be executed. And he is saying, take it to God. Don't be anxious. Peace that passes understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ. And so he's saying that knowing that he might be about to be executed. And so it's not like everything's going to be fine. Right. 
Not not by any regular human standards. No. Yeah. By our standards, it is definitely not fine. Yeah. But it's almost, it does in some ways like surpass understanding to imagine yeah. that you could have this, you could have a piece that guards your heart and your minds yeah. in the face of outcomes that you might think are are unacceptable. Yeah. You know, or right. are are, you know. Certainly not what you had in mind. Yeah. And it's notable in that uh, the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds safe. It is noticeably absent there is your body. Mm. And so there is a sense here in which what happens to your body is one thing. And maybe the more important thing is what happens to your heart and mind. I don't, if you, if you follow that theology too far, it gets problematic pretty quick. But I also think there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. I, I'm always, I mean, we've, we've talked about this before, but just Paul, the more we read this letter of Paul in particular, like last year, Paul <laughs> irritated me pretty badly in Galatians. I, I, know, I know that was his struggle. Um, but this is a different kind of letter from Paul. Yeah. And he is, he's pretty remarkable, like the kinds of things he can say in the face of the circumstances he seems to be facing. Yeah. And definitely a, a witness to that peace that he's talking about. Is Paul actually executed? We think so. The last we really hear about Paul is his letter uh, from uh, Rome. And the book of Acts tells us he's in Rome on trial. The later tradition holds that Paul was executed in Rome, maybe in the Neuronic persecutions in 64, Mm. or maybe, you know, somewhere around in there. So, yeah, so we think Paul was executed. Maybe not this particular imprisonment. Right. That he's writing Philippians from, but uh, but the tradition holds that he was executed in Rome. Hmm. Well, these two texts together do open up a, a wide expanse, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a wide expanse of things that that might feel most pressing as we wrap yeah. up our season. What's at the top of your mind? I think at the top of my mind for this text is you know this Pentecost text is the story of, or at least one of the stories of the birth of the church. And so there is this, in my mind, a fundamental importance to what is the community supposed to look like that was founded on this day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit rushed onto the disciples. And you get that in this text and in ways that we've been talking about in terms of the Holy Spirit coming upon people and the thing that it empowers them to do is to speak in the language of an idiom of other people, like to inhabit in some way, to appreciate and try to participate in the culture of people unlike themselves, and that that's sort of the first thing that happens. So to me, that's really important. And then, and then this other issue of uh, the Spirit is poured out, according to Joel, on everybody, sons, daughters, young, old, slave, not slave. And this this vision of the church as a, community that embraces all of the people and in which the goal is not to get other people to conform to your way of speaking and being, but for you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to learn how to approach people in their own language and culture. And if we, if we could be this truly multicultural body, multilingual body that, that bridges these gaps, like that's what the Holy Spirit has in mind. The church, in my experience, rarely achieves that. I, 
I know some churches that try to do that. I, I don't know any communities that really do that very well, but I think it's such a lovely goal to say our, like to really be people of, of the spirit. We need to be finding ways to appreciate and enter into and engage in the cultures and languages of people unlike ourselves. I think that relates to that Philippians passage about not being anxious and about treating people generously. We, we are more likely to view people as competitors and as adversaries than as neighbors if we don't understand them or appreciate them or know them. So I think there's an invitation there. If we can really enter into the, the ways of other folks, then we can be neighbors with them and then we can be at peace. I think there's really something important to that. I think it's a great vision for what the church could be and a, and a good thing to think about on Pentecost when we celebrate, you know, what, why is the church even here and what are we trying to do? Yeah. Like I think that's a good vision to keep in mind. I love that, Bobby. And I love, I don't know, I just, I love that vision of a church that can recognize the diversity present within it and, and like sort of try to get people on the same page, but not totally try to get people on the Mm -hmm. same page. I mean, I think that's a real tension in community formation is how do we let people be in the way that is authentic to their, to themselves, to their families, to their cultures. And also really sort of keep your eye on the prize. Like what is yeah. the thing that we share here? And what yeah. are the things that we don't need to share in order to yeah. in order to do that piece? I think I think it's complicated work, but but really as you're saying, like this this is the question for yeah. for the church and for religious communities in general, for the Jewish community too. Yeah. I think that's exactly right, Amy. And, you know, in this text, it's the Holy Spirit that holds everybody together. And so that's the thing that we have in common. Mm-hmm. And then there's a great, there can be great diversity within that movement of the Spirit, but it's the Spirit that is the, the uniting factor. What do you see when you read this text? You know, uh, my mind is drawn to the same general sort of idea or question that you pulled out. And I'm thinking in particular, I'm thinking back to a conversation that I had through this program called Resetting the Table that I think I've mentioned oh, yeah. before mm-hmm. that that brings together brought together people this was like religious communities in the south to get us to talk talk through real difference in our perspectives so people who are somewhere else you know politically on the spectrum or theologically on the spectrum and and like acknowledge real difference don't just try to find common ground <laughs> yeah. but talk about the uncommon ground yeah And one of the topics we were discussing in our small group was whether people should be automatically enrolled to vote when they Mm. turn the appropriate age or whether people should have to do something in order to have that right. Yeah. And as you probably can imagine, that the questions that came up were mostly around, like, is that the kind of, you know, we have to raise the bar a little bit because you have to show you want it. Like, if you have to do something in order to get it, then you're more invested in it. And if it's just given to you, then you don't take it that seriously and are less likely to vote or pay attention or whatever. Or are you genuinely creating a barrier and maybe a larger barrier for some people than for others that has nothing to do with someone's motivation or interest in voting? It's just you're just making it harder for them for no reason. Right, right. And that's that's what I was thinking about in in the conversation we were having about about languages and, you know, imagining these Jews from around the world who have 
come to Jerusalem, like they have met a high bar yeah. for investment. And I feel like this is going to make me sound like a crazy person, but I'll tell you what I'm wondering. I just, I wonder if there are, or what are the ways that we can still establish, like invite people to like have some skin in the game. Yeah. You know, invite people to meet us in community, like to to give something to be there without creating barriers. Because yeah. I do, my experience has been in religious community. If if you just give everyone everything and don't ask them to do anything, you know, it's often people will remain pretty passive in their relationship yeah. to the community. But to figure out what are the right things to to ask. Yeah, I love that. Is not at all clear to me. And it might not yeah. be that there's one thing that you ask uniformly of all folks. But yeah, how do, how do you invite people to really actively claim what's being offered to them and have some skin in the game without without privileging some people over others or without, you know, shutting people out and creating boundaries? Yeah. I love that, Amy, and it captures a part of this text that we talked about, but that I didn't really consider in my, what I said just a minute ago, and that is that the Spirit does pour out on all people, but it pours out on all people in order to inspire them to do things. And so for these disciples, it's inspiring them to speak and inspire some people to prophesy and inspire some people to vision and some people to dream. And so it's not simply the case that here we have a spirit that's like, here I am, but it's a spirit that's empowering people. And so for the question then to be like, what is the spirit empowering you to do, Mm. individual person? Because there doesn't seem to be an opening in this text for people who are just not doing anything. Yeah. Everybody's got something that they can contribute. That gets developed differently in other parts of the New Testament. Yeah. But it's sort of implied here. Yeah. I love that question. What is the Spirit calling you to do or enabling you to do? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, Amy, that's the end of our conversation about the narrative lectionary for this year. That's the it's end. What a great question year. to end on. Yeah, I love that. You can ponder it for the next, <laughs> for this summer. Yeah. yeah. Or you can ponder it for the summer or you can do our summer series with us. Yeah. So next week we're starting into our summer lectionary series on economic justice in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. We've got some really great texts, uh, three from the Hebrew Bible and three from the New Testament. Fascinating stuff. Really good. Really relevant and texts that people really love to overlook because they're very inconvenient. <laughs> so inconvenient. My favorite thing is like biblical literalists who are like, oh, we take everything in the Bible literally. And then if you read them, one of these texts, like um, never charge anyone interest or like mm-hmm. forgive everybody's debts in the seventh year. They're like, oh, well, that's not literal. That's not, <laughs> like, no. well, okay. But like, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, it, but yeah, yeah, it's in there. It's in there. So next week we'll be in that text in Deuteronomy 15 and 24. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, Amy. I'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. 
Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporter, Jennifer DeFrancesco. Though the narrative lectionary season is now complete, Bible Worm is not on summer vacation yet. Join us again next week as we begin our six-week summer study of economic justice in the Bible as we delve into Deuteronomy chapters 15 and 24. Until then, keep on digging.